0: Okay, Joe, I want to start with how you ended up getting shot in the chest on a prison yard. All right.
1: (laughs) I don't know what it is with me. I don't ever want history to repeat itself, so I don't pick up no matter fucking what. Matter of fact, you told me that one.
2: This is transformation with Roman Cooper. On today's podcast, Roman Cooper interviews ex-con and recovering addict Joe. Some of the names have been changed to protect the guilty. Listener discretion is advised.
0: So, if you don't want. How do we get from young Joe to shot in the chest and why?
1: Um, yeah, the shot in the chest actually did get me rolling. That was 1998 and that was at Salinas Valley State Prison. That was a prison term I picked up. I was out for 60 days. Thank God I really picked up a, uh, not a 211, not a robbery, PN you know, Code 211, but it was a PN Code. 212, which is the lower end, and uh, I had stabbed a uh, drug dealer, the robber, and that's what I ended up with, as far as my sentence. And I ended up there at Salinas Valley State Prison, it was a level four, I I'd still owed shoe time, which is security housing unit, for my last term, so they put me on a more restrictive yard. I rolled into that yard and that yard was already on lockdown. And they shot a kite, quote unquote, a note over um, for me to stab my neighbor who was a shot caller for the bloods. And it was a black cell. The the Mexican gangs, North and South, they were already on like a six month lockdown. So, it didn't happen, and we were gonna get Yard for a half hour, and I guess the, the whites and the blacks were already on lockdown for like two months. So I was there maybe a week, and we went out to Yard, and you know I had my razors on me, and we already knew what was gonna happen. Somebody was gonna get somebody else in another building, and when the alarm rang, we were supposed to rush the blacks and in there you have to uh, go with the flow or you're mince meat. So I'm not gonna say that my you know I, I was in it, you know what I mean? Um, I wasn't trying to go with the flow. I was I was game for whatever back then. When the alarm rang, it was me and my silly, we called him Finn. We were gonna watch each back during this. The alarm rang, there was like twenty five whites and there was probably 60 blacks and the blacks you know they're, they're mixed up of you know you got the cribs and your bloods but on those higher level yards they all run together and um we rushed them and you know i got a hold of one and i was and i cut cut the top of his head and i got him down and i was kicking the top of his head and watching the skin go back Producer. But when you're in a situation like that, it's uh, it's uh, it's war, and you know you treat it as war, and so you're you're trying to survive, and you're trying to do as much damage as you can to whoever. So it has nothing to do with race. You know, it's just that's just a way. To work. I remember feeling I thought I got kicked, and. Um, I got up because I took a knee. I got up and uh, and went to uh, uh, peel his you know the skin on the top of his head. It was like getting scalped. And I realized everybody else was down. Everybody was in the prone position as they like to call it in there. They were all laying down. So I realized that I needed to get la- I laid down. And I remember hearing the shots being fired. And I remember hearing the bullets getting. Uh, Grass around me, um, and when I got down, I uh, I, th- I thought I was vomiting, but it wasn't vomiting; it was blood. About a cup of blood came out of my mouth, and I started. To, I thought I got stabbed at that point, so I remember lifting up my jacket and looking for the stab wound, and it, I had a big hole in my chest on the right side of my or left side of my chest. And uh bubbles were coming out of it. I remember that, it was big blood bubbles. That's when I realized that I got shot with the mini fourteen. My cellie who was fighting we were fighting back to back, he was watching my back, he got shot in the chin, ricocheted off his big old chin, <laughs> and went through his uh, his left uh, shoulder cap. So he was laying next to me. He was raising his hand as well, saying he got shot. But, yeah, that's that's what happened. I, I remember um, at that point, everybody's yelling out to everybody to make sure everybody's okay. And, uh, you know, I raised my hand said I, I was shot. And a CEO had came over to me. I'll never forget his name, CEO Gonzalez. And I remember him looking down at me and just staring at me. And what was flashing before my eyes was, the, was uh, I had this one Um, photograph of my daughter Um, I just remember seeing this big photograph over I mean I really wasn't even looking up at the sky or or the CEO that was looking down at me I remember just looking at like a portrait picture of my daughter's face I thought I was gonna die and that was a that was a turning point right there I had actually asked uh, the CEO if he was gonna help me or if I was gonna die He actually opened up his black jacket that he had on and pulled out a bunch of gauze and started to administer first aid to me instead of just looking at me bleed out. But yeah, that was was a pretty intense moment in my life right there.
0: So what got you to that point where you thought it was okay to stab a drug dealer and then go to war on a prison yard? How did you get to that point where you weren't very concerned with another human being's life.
1: I guess, you know, it was years of drug abuse, you know, and I was a hope to die drug addict. I didn't care. I didn't really, there was obviously moments where I did care and I, and I you know, I was soft and, but there were, there were more moments of just not caring and selfishness and um, I just didn't care. I really didn't care, you know.
0: Do you know why you became a drug addict? Was there something that uh, got that ball rolling, or do you know? Uh,
1: I don't really know. Um, I remember growing up as a little kid, and my mom and dad had split up, and this was, um, he actually lived in uh, Gardena, California. Me and my brother would go over to his house for the weekend, and he was in a 1% motorcycle club. So I got to see a lot of Crazy crap going on over there. Drugs, ran into bikers shooting drugs. I don't know what it was at the time because I was so young. I remember I remember some of his friends coming in. I remember this one time climbing up on the toilet seat and watching this big old biker pull a tooth out of his tongue. <coughs> My dad used to grow weed in his backyard so I had a older brother from another marriage so we would like, you know, we would just pull the plants and they dry it out over the stove. That was in the very late 70s. So I was little. I was young.
0: Why was this guy pulling a tooth out of his tongue?
1: Apparently they were in a bar fight.
0: <laughs> 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 so when you got shot in the chest, was that your last prison term?
1: I wish I could say that it was, but it wasn't. That was my last prison term for some time. That term I got out in uh, uh, 1999, mid-1999, and I ended up going back after a long stretch of clean time and recovery and then riding the fence for a couple years and getting away with shit and uh, going off and on. And then I picked up another term in 2013. What was it for that time? It was for a couple of things. It was more possession of sales, and then they finally got me on a uh, possession sales and counterfeiting charge. Making money the old-fashioned way. Making money? No, I guess it's the new, the new millennia. So <laughs> you know, they got computers and printers and magnetic ink and uh, a product called Awesome <laughs> that washes the ink off of bills. So that was a pretty unintelligent uh, choice that I made. So how long were you clean for between those two terms? So from August of 1999, I was drink-free and intravenous drug and pop-free. I believe it was ten years and two days. Prior to that, I hurt my back and went to the doctor. And I was still going to meetings and all this. Uh, the doctor prescribed me medication, pain management medication. And, you know, this was uh, 2007. So. Oxycodone I was taking it as prescribed I didn't think nothing of it. I was still so going to meetings, so I was doing all the physical therapy and, you know, I was doing what I was supposed to do. I didn't think nothing of it. You know, I'm here to tell you that that was the beginning of the end for me, you know, was that pain management. Man. That took me by surprise. I don't know why I didn't think that it was wrong or, you know, I used to talk about it in meetings. And it, uh, it, it, it kicked my ass, you know, you, you can't be a recovering drug addict. My my drug of choice is heroin and speed, so I, I would never suggest that to anybody any kind of pain management as far as narcotics. So that's what took me out. I think that's what gave me the excuse to finally take that first drink. Now, obviously, alcohol is my main. Uh, you know, me and alcohol absolutely don't get along, but I love the effects of it because it makes me not care about anything. You know, I can be a uh, Serial killer if you will with, with with no conscience, you know do things that you wouldn't normally do and and, and don't care So when did you uh, get out from your last term? I got off my last term on Father's Day. It was June 21st 2015
0: And so what happened when you got out this time?
1: Well, actually this time when I went in I lost custody of my, my, my son you know, I had kicked my daughter out prior to me getting arrested. So there was already that wedge in between that relationship with one of my daughters, my other daughter, she was, she wasn't living with me at the time. So I kind of came one of those, you know, a hopeless, the, the feeling of hopelessness and, uh, and didn't care. You know, I went back to resorting to making alcohol in county jail and, getting high in county jail, and as soon as, you know, as soon as I got to the main line, I was looking for dope, heroin, and so I was doing heroin, and, uh, Soledad, and, um, making wine. What happened, here's another, here's another turn of events for me, so what happened was, uh, my cellie. I was taking care of him, as far as meaning he didn't really have anybody out there, and I had money on my books, so... I bought all the food, it didn't matter. And he had spent his pay number, I wanted him to get a case of Top Ramen. And instead he went and bought a morphine pill. And I remember coming back from the yard and he was already gowed out. And I lit him up and he went to work because he worked in the kitchen. So he was my source of sugar for my wine. And one of the CEOs saw that he had a black eye, and a busted lip and he told on me. So what happened was a Came and got me off the yard, took me to the hole, and saw it. add So now I had complete abstinence. You know, there was no way of. Uh, you know, I could still make my alcohol in there, but it's, it wasn't even worth the, the risk of getting caught because you're in the hole. And um, they used to have a book cart that used to come around once a week. And the book cart came around, and there was a little, a little New Testament, little Bible. And it's uh, AA book, so I grabbed those two books out there, and immediately started to get into the scriptures, just to read and reminiscing into the AA's big book. And uh, at that point, my my outlook on the rest of my term changed. You know, I don't want to do this anymore.
2: This episode has been brought to you by Transformations Care Residential Detox. Visit us at transformationscare.com.
0: You know everything is what it was like, what happened, what it's like now, obviously. But I want to talk about how it was then. The closer, like the emotions and feelings, the better. But you just play it out. It's your story. You tell how it or you want to tell it, right?
1: I was giving up on myself. That's the that's where it all starts, you know. Uh, but I, I gave up on myself, but that book brought me back around, gave me purpose, reminded me that if I just do the next indicated right thing, things will change. For the most part, and from my experience, the change is usually positive. You know, obviously there's 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 hips and valleys to everything for you carpenters that are listening, but uh, you have your ups and downs, you know. You have your mountains to climb and your pitfalls to watch out for. So, you know, that just that's everyday life. That's normal. But for the most part, things will change for the positive. You know? look, as long as you keep in that forward, upward motion, no matter how many times you fall, you're to get back up. You know, that, that, that's where my mindset came back to when I opened up the, the New Testament and I opened up the A's uh, big books. that made a change.
0: So, we've known each other for a long time, and for the entire time I've known you, there's been uh, the Joe that will tear your arm off and beat you to death with it, and also the Joe that will give you the shirt off of his back and do whatever he can to help you make sure you're fed and taken care of and got a place to sleep. Like, how did those two people uh, live in you for so long? What's the story
1: with that? Well... That's funny you said that. I always felt like I had some kind of a multiple personality, but I really don't. I don't think, you know, even though I was diagnosed with that at a young age, <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't know. I get, I, 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 I don't know where I get the soft side. I've, I've never been one shy to show my emotions, whether they be violence or whether they're me sobbing, you know, I'll cry. I don't give a shit. I don't know how many times I've been in fights and I'm, you know, I'm that crazy kid that'll start crying and beat your ass, you know what I mean, and I don't even mean to, or or I'll be that guy that'll be laughing, letting you just smash me in the face, you know, and laughing, and looking at you through my blood, <laughs> blood dripping down on my eyes, laughing and smiling. I, I, I don't know what, what, where that, or how I became that person, and, or how I live with that person. Today, I can tell you, you know, I've made it through all these years, you know, I'm now 40 something and,
0: uh, um, Hell of a lot closer to 50 than you are 40. Hey, hey, hey,
1: <laughs> Today I can actually say that, um, you know, I've made it through all these crazy things that have happened in my life and, um, you know, the, the wisdom and the age that that's, that's coming a long ways now, you know, and now starting as a kid, I mean, you know, my mom was a single mom, my dad was a biker, my mom was a nun. She was a nun before she had me and my brother. You know, I, I thought my mom was raised me with some good values, or she tried to. I was just that kid that just did not give a shit. I didn't give a shit what anybody said. I fought the system um, on everything. I was a wonder, not a wanderer, but a wonder. I wondered about everything. I was the kid that asked what if about the most ridiculous questions you can imagine. I was. Um, my mom had made me put a what if book together. And once a week, I was able to sit down with her and ask her all these what if questions. I mean, ridiculous questions. You know, she was a single mom. My dad wasn't around. He actually had to leave California. He, um, he's passed away now, but he, he had killed somebody killed one of his brothers in the, in the MC, and he had to leave town. So he actually left in 1981 and never came back to California. He went, you know, he went to the East Coast and um, stayed out there until he died. I looked up to my father. You know, he was tattooed head to toe, and uh, you know, my mom used to tell me stories about him and say he be a good lover and he was charismatic and caring. And, but uh, he was actually a heroin addict and an alcoholic himself, and he was also very violent. You know, he used to beat up my mom and just beat up everybody, and you know, he got beat up as well. So, you know. Um, But I idolized my father, and I idolized his way of life, you know, the rebellious way of life that that he lived. I think that's what started it for me, you know. That and and the sound of chainsaw punk rock, I'll never forget that. Punk rock is a big part of my story. It allowed me to be who I wanted to be, and it allowed me to not care. You know, I'm, I'm not saying it's a good thing that it happened to me, I mean, I was on the streets at a young age. My mom left. She got remarried, had another son, got into a divorce, and uh, left the country. And me and my brother were uh, on the streets. I wasn't the easiest kid to uh, maintain. I was uh, hanging out with the wrong crew when I was 12. I got kicked out of all the schools in the, the area that I grew up in, the uh, coastal area of LA County. We went to juvenile hall, camp, Went through a, uh, a program called Project Six where I was on every medication you could think of. I felt like a 1980s guinea pig um, for psychotropic drugs. Made it to the nuthouse a few times over all of you in the valley. towards in shuffle all that. I would run away from those places as well and uh, hang out on La Brea or Hollywood Boulevard. Hanging out with the freaks and the homeless and there's a lot of punk rocks and heroin addicts and just filth, you know. I was in downtown. I was in a program called Optimus Boys Home, which I actually went and revisited uh, about a year ago because I was working over in an area and I went looked at it. That Optimus Boys Home has been around since I think 1910. It's still there, and I went over there just to look at it. And I sat, and I had a friend of mine with me, and we just sat on the hill, and I looked at the like the grounds or the yard, just, so you want to call it, for about an hour, and just reminisced, and I shed some tears, and was able to talk about it to one of my friends that was with me. and I don't know. I just, you know, looking at it today, because i today I have a 13 year old son that I'm a single father to take care of. And kind of, I put my, myself at 13 years old and I put him at, at you know, what he's doing in his life at 13 years old. And I wish I had a father like me that uh, uh, I'm uh, uh, I not, don't, I don't know. That, that Occam's Boys Home, that place was crazy. I didn't like it. I was constantly getting in fights and running away. I met a lot of cool punk rockers at the time there. I came out of there as a, I thought it was a skinhead. and and went to a local beach school that had uh, no skinheads there, and I was just a a sore thumb, you know? I didn't even... I was led in a lot of different ways um, by my peers, not by my parents, you know? So, uh, my peers were drug addicts and alcoholics and people overruling ex congress I liked all that stuff. I thought it was pretty interesting. I I forgot the question that you had asked me.
0: I mean, just keep on rolling.
1: Right. You know... um, I'm enthralled. (laughs) I don't know. uh, As far as, like, going in and out of the program, um, I never really had the... I've been addicted to heroin I don't know how many times. uh, Strung out my way of kicking heroin was uh was methamphetamine and um, you know you just stay up for two weeks and you know you're not you're not strong on heroin anymore and um i never thought i would be in a position where i am today because i always thought that i was stupid and i don't like saying that it kind of annoys me that i just said that out loud but i always felt like i was less than i always felt like that i couldn't do something and where, where did that stem from? I, I have no idea. I don't ever remember my mom telling me that. You know, it could have been my stepdad that she was married to for a little bit and um, my, my one of my brother's fathers, you know, I called him, I tried to call him dad, but he didn't like it. He abused me, he used to whip me, you know, with a belt, which in my area wasn't all that outside the norm. Uh, what was outside the norm is I would get 100 swats with a belt. And he would have a conversation with me, so I would block it out. I would block out what was happening. I would block out the pain. And he would actually talk to me about fishing and camping, and it was a very strange dynamic. And I think that is kind of how I've, you know, thank God I'm not a sociopath today, but it was molding me into a sociopathic person. Of I could do things, or I can be in a situation and and take myself out of it, which I was able to do heinous things in my life. I've got. 16 people I've stabbed, and I'm not proud of that at all. That, I I don't, you know, looking back on it today, that just seems like a total different person. I never, I can't imagine myself being that person today. But I think my stepfather had a lot of, uh, uh, and I'm not blaming it on him, it just, it is what it is, and, and, uh, but I think I molded a lot of my sociopathic behaviors from, from him, you know, his punishments. I don't know. I, I used to love the man. Uh, we used to go camping and fishing together, but then he would drink his uh, pint of wild turkey, and uh, it would be all bad from there. You know, um, I don't know. I mean, I really wasn't, you know, violent prior to that. You know, I used to, me and my brother getting fights all the time. I'd kick his ass until he got bigger than me. That he You know what I mean? But, yeah, I don't know. I think a lot of it had to do with my stepfather. I think that was kind of a turning point for for me to being able to do some heinous things that I've done in my life, you know, and take myself outside of it and then continue living life and being that soft guy and caring and being, you know, having these multiple personalities. I don't know. You know, it's, uh, I think a lot of it had to do with that guy. Which, by the way, when he did pass away, I was by his bedside. And he did apologize to me. He did say he was sorry. And I returned the favor of apologizing to him for being such a crazy kid, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, that I feel good about that. What else, what else you got? What else do I have? Yeah, what else do you have? I don't know, I mean, today, uh, so you would think that, um, after four prison terms and uh, being free, my mom had saved up money and handed me an envelope full of hundreds. It was quite a bit, it was quite a bit of money. It was more, it was more money than I felt comfortable with. Um, uh, I did not want to work. You know, Normally I, I'm in construction management and I wanted nothing to do with that. I just wanted a little 7 to 3.30 job as a carpenter. I didn't want any responsibility when I got out this time. I still hadn't had any contact with my kids yet, except my oldest daughter. I did call her because I did have her number right when I got out of prison this time. You know, I called her. I called her on Father's Day so she could say Happy Father's Day to me. (laughs) Selfish. Uh, But I also called her because I was in the city of Hanford and it's in central California, a little one horse town that has an Amtrak. And so when you get out of prison in California, they give you a $200 gate money, they call it. And that's how so you can start your life, on $200. Well, they've been giving $200 out for the past 25 years, so I don't understand that one, but um, you know, the math doesn't work. Um, but I got, I, went, I, was, I was really paranoid when I got out, so my daughter kind of set me straight. I got on the train to come back down to the beach cities into LA, and um, when I finally got here, I remember being on the train and passing through the uh, the bar car, and I got really, really nervous. So I hopped off the train in Bakersfield. I felt like I needed to just get off the train, and I hopped on a bus and took the bus the rest of the way. And I met up with my little brother and my mom, and he he was like, "Hey, you want to go to a strip club?" And I said. Absolutely not. I need you to take me to a meeting right now. So actually he dropped me off. And in a lot of Club, I went to my meeting. The, the very first thing that I did when I when I when I got out of prison this time in 2015. And you know, let me back up to this last term too. So when I was in the hole in Soledad and I and I got the New Testament and the and the uh, A Alcoholics Anonymous book, at that point I knew that I wanted to sh- to try it again. I wanted to stay sober and it was no better time than now because I was by myself and I can actually do some methodical research with myself <laughs> and and look at the reasons what led me to get back to that fucking prison cell again, so to speak. So at that point I wanted to stay clean and sober when I got back to the main So when I did get back to, they sent me to another prison and uh, it was a higher level. It was cool, though, because uh, I stayed out of all the politics there. I actually went to school this time in prison uh, to be a certified electronic technician. I was going to meetings in there as well once a week, and I got some time off, especially with the new laws that came out. They were releasing prisoners early, which I don't really agree with, to be honest with you. But uh, whatever. I reap the rewards on it. I got out, and... uh, I was sober. You'd think that when your mom handed you an envelope full of money uh, that I would be happy, but I wasn't. I missed my son. I was actually in a very dark place. I was sleeping on my really good friend's couch. I my contacted my daughter, my middle daughter. Do- I have three kids. I have two daughters and a son, and uh, my middle daughter, she called me up on my birthday, which is, you know, a month from when I got out. So. She called me and, uh, she wished me a happy birthday. And so we set up a a meeting time. I went down I borrowed my mom's car, went down and saw her, but she was like living with her mom and her sister and her brother all in a one bedroom apartment in a, in a rough area. So I didn't like it. And I told my friend, I go, look, I gotta get back to work. So I set me up a couple job interviews. He actually took me down and bought me a truck. I offered to pay for it. He didn't want any money from me, so he just paid for it for me. My other friend set up a couple of interviews, and my first interview was downtown LA. I remember going to uh, getting some, you know, like a button-up shirt, long sleeve, put a tie on, and I was so nervous. I, I felt like you'd see the stripes still on me. You know what I mean. <laughs> I went down to the downtown building, it was one of the high-rises, went inside. They're on EMS, which is Energy Management Systems. So, I got there a little bit early, it was 7.30. The ACs don't kick on until 8 o'clock. So, I mean, they're sweating like a pig. And by the time my interview was at 8 o'clock, I had huge sweat rings around my neck, my whole back, under my arms. Looked like I just got out of the shower, just dripping. I was so nervous. Needless to say, I failed miserably at that interview. The following interview I got though, I landed the job. I went right back into a construction management job, got an apartment and moved my daughter in and was able to repair that relationship with my daughter and my oldest daughter. But something was missing from me and that was my son. And I didn't know where he was at. He was with his mom in the Midwest somewhere. Um, I wasn't able to get a hold of him or her. And I was in a dark place. I wanted to kill myself. And I was really serious about it. And I was kind of getting everything ready to do it. And I was actually being twisted and talking to my kids kind of about it. And, you know, they would cry. But I really didn't know what to do, you know. Uh, and this is sober. This is sober. This is, uh, this is two years sober. Okay. And I, so I went and I was going to meetings as well and talking about it, you know, and people would try to come up to me after the meeting and I really didn't want to, I didn't want to hear it. I was just going there to vent. I, I didn't want to receive. I just wanted to let it, get it off my chest. I wasn't looking for the attention. I didn't, I didn't want to mingle after the meeting. I didn't want to get coffee with anybody after the meeting. You know, I didn't, I just wanted to vent it out. I, I highly don't suggest that. So what happened was, uh, here's the dope fiend that I am. I had a job down in Orange County and I went and my back got messed up. So I come into work and I'm you know, i coming in crooked and there was a, a union carpenter on the job, old guy. And he's like, he sees me coming in all crooked and he goes, hey, I got something for you. And I go, yeah, what do you got? He goes, oh, I've got some uh, Percocet in my truck. And I went, nah, I'm good, man. You know, I don't, I'm good on that. Got any Advil? So he gives me a couple Advil. Well, just the notation of of Percocet burned the image into my brain. And I cannot stop thinking about the Percocets. So at about lunchtime, I go, hey, uh, Remember you were saying he had some Percocet? <laughs> I go, let me get a couple of those. I oh, yeah, no problem. So he hobbles out to his truck. He's got a big old freaking, he's got a big old bottle of them, right? So he dumps out three or four of them into my hand. And I told him, hey, can I get a couple more? And so he dumps out a few more. He goes, that'll last you a couple days. And I said, all right, thanks. So I take all of them. I think there's like seven of them. they were number tens, 10 milligrams. And I got and to be honest with you, I haven't really told anybody about this except one other person. And so what happened was, um, at the end of the day, I hit him up and told him, "Hey, I took all of those." And he's like, "What?" And I go, "So he gave me two more." So I went went home, whatever. Woke up the next morning, back was perfect, right? No problems. Feelings of guilt, yes, running wild in my head. So I drive down to the job site down in Orange County. It's about a 35 mile trek. And I get there, and my dope fiend ass gets out of my truck all crooked and hobbles into work. There's absolutely nothing wrong with me. You know what I mean? And he goes, oh, my God, what's going on? Your back still listening? i go, like, yeah, dude, it is bad. It's like 10 times worse. So he's like, I go, you got any more of those things? So that made me, that started me up again, and I called up my old connection that dealt with pills and, uh, I thought if I was taking pills that it would be fine, you know, and because my back hurt or so I was telling myself this, right? So I started getting some OxyContin and then, you know, I had an old injury from when I was 18, which is a whole nother story, got ran over by the police from when I was 18 years old. They ran over my foot and it's been broken, right? So. You know, I got good insurance now, so I was like, you know, it's time to get a foot fixed, you know, so I go in for whatever, they tell me, oh yeah, we need to do surgery and all this. So I'm like, okay, how does it feel? Rate your pain, one to 10? No, it's a 10, I can hardly walk. So they so they prescribed me uh, some Norcos, or, you know, and then I had the surgery and I had my brother and this girl that I was seeing kind of manage my pills, but I was also buying uh, Oxycontin for my connection. Finally, my brother came in and uh, he was over it. He came in. Oh, and I stayed in the hospital for three days. Uh, it was supposed to be a 24-hour thing. it's still over one night. I just kept telling them the pain was too much and the morphine's not working, and they are getting me diluted, So I was just soaking it up in there. My kids are the ones that actually told uh, the doctor, he's a heroin addict. Like, so they cut me off, sent me over. My kids and this girl were managing my, uh, my brother got my my daughter a safe and put the pills in there so they would be divvying it all out to me. Finally one day he came in and just took all the pills and everything. So I decided, uh, I'd start drinking alcohol again. So that lasted for about two months. I was on a knee scooter at the time and I would take the Uber over to the bar and drink and take the Uber back. And you know, I thought I was being responsible and I wasn't getting any trouble. And, and I'd only gotten one fight on one foot once and- how uh, find <laughs> your scooter? Yeah, no, no, the guy was riding around on my scooter and he thought it was funny. And uh, I told him, hey, dude, I need my scooter, dude. And he brought it over. I didn't know the guy and I just laid him out. Told um, <laughs> so it was not a toy. Anyhow, like, um, one night at the bars, a friend came up, he had a bag of cocaine, and I fell into a bag of cocaine. And I came home that night, or that next morning, and I, you could tell that I was on drugs. I'd been up all night, and my daughter, the look on my daughter's face was uh, was enough. That was uh, September. The look on my daughter's face was September 28th of 2016. The, the next day, the 29th, I went to a meeting. You know, I've been sober since, but, um... So what's your sobriety date? It's September 29th, 2016.
0: Yeah? Yeah. Well, okay, so you told us all this crazy shit, which I know for a fact is all true. Right. And you actually left out a lot of juicy parts, maybe because you're feeling sorry for the people listening, I don't know. But, like, what do you do today, man? How, how
1: have you made it since September of sixteen? Uh, I've had a couple sponsors since then. I don't, I don't know. I, I, you know, I go to meetings every once in a while. In the very beginning, in the in the first year, I went to meetings probably about three, four times a week. And, you know, I would split it up between some NA meetings and some AA meetings. I was working well with uh, with both of the sponsors, but I'm not suggesting any of this. I, today, for me, it's God, you know. I, I'm a firm believer in Jesus Christ, and that's who has healed me beyond. You know, I have a lot of friends that are constantly needing my advice, my know-how on what to do. I'm constantly in the solution of the program. You know, the 12 steps have been instilled in me, so I, I feel that I'm doing the work as long as I do the next indicated right thing. That's another thing he used to tell me as well, uh, and to keeping that forward, upward motion. You know. Uh, and don't pick up no matter motherfucking what or your exact words, you know, I'll be okay. My son, I'm really involved with my son. So today what I do, I've I've also been celibate for a little over a year. And that is so I can focus on my relationship with, uh, with Christ and my son in my career. And it's basically in that order. You know, my son is 13 years old, he needs a lot of me, and I just feel that a a woman in my life. uh, Relationships for me are sort of like drugs and alcohol, you know what I mean? And uh, I don't feel that I'm healthy enough for a relationship, nor do I want to put my son through any kind of my bullshit. You know what I mean? And and I still like a dirty leg, and uh, I don't think it's fair to my son. You know, they're very needy and drama, and I don't want any of that. And so I, I'm basically in prison mode when it comes to when it comes to sex right now. Nothing but a little bit of a, a little quick fucking rub and tug doesn't work. You know. No, but I, I'm not even doing any of that. So it's like you know, it, it's um, I really am focusing on my relationship with God. My, my career and the relationship with my son, you know. I have a very good solid relationship with both my girls. You know, they're older now. Uh, they're living on their own and have their own lives and their own relationships. And, but for me, it's just, it's just staying in the solution, which is, which is not picking up and I gotta give it away to keep it. So, you know, I'm a success story. Uh, I should be dead 10 times over. I've been stabbed three times. And I've been shot and um, I've OD'd over a number of times. I shouldn't even be on this planet. I'm here for another purpose, but also to help the next alcoholic and drug addict out there, you know, that's, that's, that feels lost and and feels that they can't do it and felt like they were stupid and didn't finish school and were in trouble their entire life. And don't know know how to put down the politics of the yard or if you've been to prison or the gang, you know, I've been involved in all that crap, you know? today, I don't, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I am who I am, and I, I try to focus on my life and how I can better my life for my kids, you know what I mean? And today, I have an awesome job, I have an awesome employer, and I live by the beach, and... Now, I, I'm, you know, I'm not Superman. I'm not, you know, I'm just as... I'm just as close to the next shot or drink as the, the, the guy that's in the gutter right now, sipping on a bottle of Night Train, and, and and squashing out his uh, cottons you know what I mean but um, um, I can tell you today I'm sober I woke up sober I woke up clean I woke up grateful to my higher power my my life has completely changed you know 180% uh. but if you're listening and you're looking for the similarities I, I am I am a qualified dope fiend qualified alcoholic and I'm um, I've turned my life around, uh, 180 percent, and you know it's it's all about putting one foot in front of the other. If you don't have faith in yourself, let somebody else have faith in you. You know, if you don't have faith in a higher power, let the higher power have faith in you because he does. You know, uh, it is one day at a time, and that's all you got to worry about is the one moment at a time. If you have to make it that, you know, you too can succeed. You know, this person that's sitting across from you now. I was a hopeless, I didn't know where to go, I didn't know where to turn to. I didn't, I was at the end of my rope, I was with this girl that had a year sober, and I didn't have, I came over to have sex with her, and I brought a couple beers with me, and, and in the morning I was hoping to maybe drag her out, because she had a job, and I know that she could buy the bag, and instead she took me to a meeting, and uh, I ran across you, you know, and And I really never worked in my life, you know, I was a criminal. and. Um, and you offered me a job. And from that moment forward, you know, you you were able to, I didn't believe in myself, but you believed in me. You helped me along the way, and to this day, 20 years later, (laughs) matter of fact, it's 20 years within the day that I got out, dude. Look at that. And, um, wow. You believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. You were a hard ass to me, and I just tried to roll with the punches as best as I could, and so did you. And I have faith in, in the steps. You know the steps do work. You know there's some people that don't have to do them, but once you do them and you live it, you can continuously live those steps. And I'm not saying like that's a necessity to stay clean and sober. Is those is the steps? But I can tell you right now they do help. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit.
0: A little bit. You know. Basically, you're telling me. Yeah that paying attention and doing what's suggested in a 12-step program and having a good relationship with a power greater than yourself, you're able to not think about yourself all the time and do good things for other people and put them ahead of you. That's what you're telling me.
1: In a nutshell, um, yeah,
2: been listening to Transformations with Roman Cooper. In every episode, we will introduce you to someone that has gone through serious, traumatic events and has come out the other side. We hope that by listening to these stories, we can provoke you to think so that next time you make a snap judgment about someone, you stop and think to yourself, what has this person been through? What have they had to overcome in their life? And most importantly, if you're in the midst of overcoming something traumatic in your life, we want to give you hope that you too can come out the other side a better person. This episode has been brought to you by Transformations Care Residential Detox. Look us up at transformationscare.com or call us at 424-340-9267. 12 step programs have no spokespersons and the views and statements in this podcast only represent the experiences of the participants and do not in any way represent any 12 step program transformation podcast was produced and edited by sammy town and Lisa cheshire we would like to thank all our guests and everyone that has helped us out along the way if you're struggling with alcohol or drug addiction please go to aa.org or na.org and ask for help. And please remember that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. If you're suicidal or even contemplating suicide, call the National Suicide Lifeline at 800-273-8255.
1: give what I can to my son and I'll go shop at freaking Mervin's. I don't care Marshall's whatever it's called